seated. If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 18 in just one moment. If you don't have one with you, or again, if you primarily use your cell phone and you would like to avoid the distraction that cell phones provide, there is likely a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 9, the passage that we will be reading on page 764 of that Bible. We've often heard it said that there are two sides to every story. This is undoubtedly true. There's always different takes and different opinions over any event that might have occurred. At the same time, we understand that not all of those stories are equal. They're not all right. They're not all worth believing in or giving credence to. But there is a value in hearing those stories nevertheless. Even as sinners often have a reason for the sins that they engage in, it is perhaps of no truth or no value truth-wise to listen to every single side of the story, but it is of value still. We might not see the reasons, we might not see their opinions, we might not see their side of the story as legitimate, but it does help us to see something of who they are. Today, again, as we go through what will be eventually three miracles relayed here at the end of Matthew 9, we understand and have put before us by Matthew the importance of faith. Clearly, that is something that Matthew has highlighted before in the gospel. And certainly, as we've gone through the miracles of Matthew chapters 8 and 9, faith has been highlighted. But it gets more highlighted today. There's a sort of a centering of faith in all of these stories. But just like every other story, there are always two sides to that. And for us today, it's not just highlighted this issue of faith and the faith of the people who are being healed, but also for those who respond differently to the Lord. Some show great trust and abiding in Jesus, and they expect him to faithfully and willfully heal. Others stand aloof, disbelieving in the nature of his presence, in the nature of his goodness, in the nature of his abilities. They're, in some sense, so sure of their place and so sure that they're in the right. They know what Jesus can and can't be. They have no trust, and nothing short of a miracle is going to change their minds. These sort of divergent responses to Jesus are lingering in every single story that the Bible presents. There's always people who will stand beside, no matter how great the miracle, and blame it on something else, ascribe it to something else, deny the import of what they see right before them. We have such things in our stories today. It's interesting in passing that these stories seem to come to us in groups of two. The first story is about two women being healed, one a little girl who has died, another with an issue of discharge of blood. And the second one, we've got two deaf men uh, coming forward to be healed. And the third, well, it's not two people, there's one, but he has two afflictions. Um, I only put that out there so that if somebody can figure out why we have a bunch of twos here, you could let me know because I just don't understand it. So uh, maybe you have theories, bring them to me. I would love to hear them. But nevertheless, we have three stories about healings with miraculous acts of faith being shown in almost each of them. But the responses to Jesus also come with those. One is going to be laudatory. One is going to be statements of absolute trust in the work and the will of Jesus Christ. But there is, in each story, a second response. 
that is neither faithful nor laudatory nor good, sinful and wretched. Today, as we look at our text and the responses of those featured, we have a righteous example to follow and a well-trod path of unbelief to avoid. Read with me these three short stories, beginning in verse 18 of the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew. There we find the word of the Lord says this, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought into him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of our Lord. As we go to these stories, we're going to see two different responses, the first being good, the second being poor, and we start with the audacious versus the skeptic. The audacious versus the skeptic. We start with this ruler coming in, and he truly does have this sort of audacious faith. Normally, when people come in before Jesus, they are pleading for his help. They use honorific titles like Lord, which we'll talk about a little bit later, to, to sweeten the deal. After all, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. A little politeness does go a long way, but this man does absolutely nothing of the such. He kneels before him, which is one of the reasons why we believe that this ruler is honest in what he says here. He's not commanding Jesus as he, as a ruler, is probably accustomed to doing, but rather he is kneeling before him, seeking to get Jesus to respond. But you'll notice there's no question. There's, there's nothing. There's a statement of fact, my daughter has died, but if you come and lay your hands on her, she will live. He doesn't ask. It's not a polite conversation. It's just matter of fact. He doesn't wonder if Jesus is able or willing to help this little girl, but he assumes both. And this is somewhat odd, because up to this point in time, 
Jesus, while having performed miracles, and I think that we would do well to remember that the fame of Jesus has been spreading and word about him has been going around so that people throughout the rest of these passages are going to know who Jesus is. Jesus has shown himself to be a miracle worker. Certainly that is why this man comes to him and why he thinks he can raise his daughter from the dead, but that is a far cry from anything that Jesus has done so far. Healing lepers is one thing. Forgiving sins is one thing. Telling people to stand up and walk is one thing. Raising people from the dead is a whole other ballgame. This particular miracle is therefore above and beyond anything that he has done to this point. If you can raise people from the dead, you can heal anything. No matter how good the rest of the healings are, no matter how potent and how well he might heal legs, if people still die, then they still die. But if you can raise people from the dead, well, what else can he not do? Perhaps this man thinks that Jesus can do this because he looks, talks, and acts like the prophets of old. Elisha and Elijah performed miracles like this. We just don't know what made him think this. Maybe it was just blind hope, the grief of a father who has watched his daughter die. But the most audacious thing is not the fact that he thought that Jesus could heal his daughter. It is in the assumption that Jesus would. He doesn't ask him at all. He just says, you come. He just assumes that this man who is so hounded by people, who is taken up with leading his disciples and with all of the other diseases that he's doing and with teaching on top of it, with all that he is doing, this man just assumes that Jesus is more than willing, not simply to heal because the dead girl's not there, but to come along with this man, to travel with him in order to heal his daughter. He is banking on the fact that Jesus is an incredibly compassionate and kind man, not just a man of power who will heal when people are brought to him, but a man who is willing to go to those who need his help. This audaciousness by some is chalked up to the fact that he's a ruler, and again, he is one who gives orders and has people respond to them. The fact that he's kneeling before Jesus and the fact that Jesus follows him and seems to have no problem with how the man has addressed him signals differently. It is a sign of absolutely audacious faith that he believes that Jesus is kind enough, with as important as he apparently is, to leave everything behind and to come to heal this one little girl. There is grace in the fact as well that this is a ruler. Up to this point, it seems as though most of the people who have been brought before him and most of the people who have been attracted to Jesus' teaching are those who are of the lower class, those who are, uh, you know, if you are paralyzed, you don't have much of a life, you don't have social security, you are making your living off of begging. So they are people of lower class. As we talked through VBS this week, we, we talked about the fact that everyone's made in the image of God. So that whether you are old or young, whether you, you have in the height of all of the physical capabilities you're going to have in your life, or whether you have very few of them, whether you're handicapped or you're just getting older and your back hurts a little bit more, whether you're a baby and you just haven't grown into them yet, 
Regardless if you are rich or you're poor or what race you are from, if the image of God is upon you, that is where your value is seen. It's important to note then that that value is seen even in how the Lord hands out salvation. That it is not just to a certain class of people or a certain designation of people, but even the rulers, even those who we tend to think of as standing against Jesus, he is more than willing to help when they come to him in need. This man does that. He comes to him in need. He says, I need you to do this. And Jesus is willing to go. That is audacious faith. A faith that trusts not only in Jesus' ability to give us what we need and perhaps what we want, but a faith that insists that Jesus is willing to do it, that he's happy to do it, that it is his passion and his desire to do good things for us. As he goes, then along the way, we find another example of this kind of faith, this woman who has a discharge of blood. Twelve years is a long time. We don't know when it started. We don't know anything about her background, whether she had a family or not. If she had a family, she would have been estranged from them for some time. If she didn't have one, she would have been just heartbroken as a society that prizes marriage and family as much as they did. Not only would she have been isolated, just like lepers would have been isolated, she would have been making people ritually unclean by touching them. So not only was she isolated, but on top of that, certainly given how, how central the family was to everything and this issue keeping her from having a family or being with her family, certainly feelings of worthlessness and embarrassment would have come along with it. But she too is incredibly audacious in her faith. I would assume that she comes up behind Jesus because she doesn't think that she could possibly get to him by working her way through the crowd. She knows that if there's a crowd here, she is polluted, she is filthy, she is somehow going to make the rest of them unclean, and she doesn't think that doing that and having her standing in front of everybody, she could possibly get to Jesus perhaps, so she sneaks up behind him and touches the fringe of his robe. Perhaps she isn't worried about contaminating him because she has heard of his work with the leper where he reached out and touched the leper, not becoming unclean himself, but having his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness spill over onto the man. This Jesus seems to be unaffected by the sin of the world. He seems to be undirtied and unsoiled by the sin of the world. So holy is he that it radiates off of him. So healthy is he, so full of the life of God, that he gives it to others. His cup, as it seems, runneth over. And she expects that to happen to her. She expects that just by touching the hem of his robe, that the power and the goodness of Jesus will actually spill out over onto her without her being able to stem that tide and contaminate him. Some look at this and they, they say that her faith is superstitious. As a famous man once said, it's probably not superstitious, but just a little stitious. Because she was assured that she was going to be healed not because she touches the hem of somebody's robe, but specifically because she's touching the hem of Jesus' robe. And she is indeed healed. The word is actually saved if I only touch this garment, I will be saved. 
Jesus very clearly affirms that. Take heart, have courage. Have courage, you are saved. By the time Jesus is able to finish his journey and get to the house, we have these mourners. This is a cultural oddity. And I, I've read a decent amount of history. Uh, I've heard of strange cultural practices in places that are neither moral or immoral. This is amoral. It doesn't have a great depth of morality to it. Whether you have mourners that you pay to be there for cultural reasons or not doesn't seem to be something that, that we would have moral stances on. I'm pretty okay with a lot of that. But I got to tell you, this is weird and off-putting that you would pay people who have no connection to you, perhaps, certainly no connection to the pain that you are going through, to weep and to wail and to lament the death of a loved one for you is just an oddity to me. They're acting... And all of this is seen by their immediate laughter when Jesus enters and says that she is just sleeping. I have no doubt that they know precisely what he's saying. Their laughter isn't because they think that Jesus is a rube, because he thinks that she's sleeping, but she's not sleeping. No, 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 I don't think that that's it at all. I think that they know what Jesus has come for. They know what he is saying, and they're laughing at him because there's no way it's going to happen, which is an incredibly heartless thing to do, one, when you're paid to be there to mourn, and two, the father of the dead girl is standing right there. Jesus simply turns them out. They laugh because they're skeptical. They laugh because they don't believe that it can happen. It seems like skeptics should be sort of middle ground people, prove it to me kind of people. I don't either believe that it can happen or believe that it can't happen, but I, I need to have it proven to me either way. It seems like what they would do would be to stand there and say, you've come to wake her up, huh? Why don't you go wake her up and we'll see what happens? At worst, at worst, you get to laugh at the man when he makes a fool of himself. At best, you see a miracle. But they don't get either because they're not actually middle ground people. These skeptics aren't waiting for proof. They already know the answer. They mock him and ridicule him and laugh at the idea of this girl being raised. Clearly, an idea that the father had in mind when he went and got Jesus because they believe already that there's no way that it's going to happen. So they don't get to see. Jesus sends them all out. There's no reason to try and change their minds. There's no reason to allow them to see the goodness of the miracle that he is about to wrought. They get to go out. Now we'd be foolish to think that they don't know what happens. Resurrections aren't kept incredibly secret. They certainly know what happens, but I think that it's important that they don't get to see it. Matthew furtively, at the end of this, says that the report of this went through all that district. What skeptics get is what they're always going to get. They don't get their proof. They just get reports. They don't get to see. They don't get to taste because they don't want to. They can hear about it, but that's all they get. Those with this sort of audacious faith, 
a radical faith in Jesus. See and know and experience the greatness of his power and the, the goodness of his displays of care and compassion. They get to stand in awe of his majesty. The skeptics only have reports of these things. They only get them from a distance where they wanted to stand in the first place. They never get to try. They never get to taste. They never get to know the goodness of faith. But those who do, those who taste and see, know the goodness of the Lord. Have an audacious faith. Trust that the Lord is not only willing, but capable and wanting to do good things for you. Do not be skeptical and be thrown aside. Secondly, the astute versus the sinful. Those who are astute and those who are sinful. Here, they are indeed the same people. The second miracle story starts out with men with, again, amazing faith. These blind men show tenacity. If, if the faith of the father and the faith of the woman is in their just upfront belief and trust in the power of Jesus and the willingness of Jesus to be kind and good to them, it is, it is the tenacity of these men that makes their faith audacious and astute will become. They do follow him through the crowd. Jesus passed on from there, and two men follow him. We don't know how far they followed him, but they follow him, which is something, because we would, I think, assume that there was a crowd that was following Jesus at that time, but even if there wasn't, following men who can see while you're blind is very difficult. It's not like these were nicely paved roads. They had to be careful with where they stepped. They had to be careful with how they walked. When we went to Saturday night, many of you were going to the Loons game, and you know that it was pouring rain, and everyone kind of piled into the pavilion. It's hard to walk through that pavilion. It's hard to walk even with all those people there, and you can see what's going on. Imagine trying to navigate something like that while you're blind. These men keep up at it. Jesus enters a house, and they follow him into the house. They just seemingly won't take no. Their faith is tenacious. Most people who come up to Jesus do indeed call him a title. It's one of the things that makes the, the ruler's introduction to Jesus so odd. Most people, however, when they come up to Jesus, call him Lord. There is something we should discuss, even though it doesn't happen in this particular passage. They call him Lord later on in verse 28, but not in their first initial introduction to him. Let's talk for just a second about the word Lord. The word Lord kind of runs the absolute gamut of meanings. The word Lord can be as simple as how we call people Sir, and not even like Sir Ian McKellen or Sir Isaac Newton, where for whatever reason, the king of England or the queen of England knights people who have absolutely no characteristics of knights as they originally were, but nevertheless, that is a, a title of notoriety. It's a title of, of stature. But sometimes we use the word sir just as a way of saying, you know, I, I'm sorry, sir. It's, it's a nice title. It's something to show a sign of respect for people. And it doesn't mean anything more than that. That's how people quite often use the word Lord. They would use the word Lord simply as a sign of respect. It's an honorific, not having any more meaning than that. But at the other end of the spectrum, 
It is likely thought that after his earthly ministry, the word Lord, the title Lord was used of Jesus, not simply to refer in respect to him, but to refer to the fact that he is God. This is probably the way that Paul uses it. And one might even be tempted to say that it is the exclusive way that Paul uses it. It is no different than Paul calling Jesus God repeatedly. The Lord Jesus Christ might well be translated Yahweh, that is, Jesus Christ. So this word Lord has so much flexibility, but they don't use it. They come in right away and they say, Son of David. Son of David has a whole different set of connotations. This is astute. We don't know why they call him Son of David. Everything that Jesus has done so far lends himself to being a prophet. It lends him to being one who who repeats the words of God or provides the word of God to people, one who does miracles. All that he has done so far places him firmly under the umbrella of prophet. Very little that he has done or anything really that he has done places him firmly under the umbrella of king. And yet when they speak these words, it is hard to believe that they mean anything less than the promised king who is coming, the son of David, the son of the king that we have waited for. I don't know what it is that brings them to use this particular title. I don't know why it is that they, they think that he is the son of David. I don't know if they, they looked at the compassion and the kindness that he has for his people, how he provides for the people that are around him, and they simply think this is exactly what a king ought to do. And therefore, they come to the conclusion that he must be great David's greater son. But nevertheless, they do make this con- connection, and it is incredibly astute. No one else has come up with this. While this probably is not the full messianic idea that we end up with, it certainly is the beginning of it. And they have the only ones who have used it. The blind see better than those with eyes. But then something odd happens. Jesus heals them, asks them, do you really think that I can do this? They say, yes, Lord, yes, sir. And he heals them. But then he immediately tells them, you are not to talk about this. Interestingly, they do that very thing. It's like the very next thing we read. They went through all, uh, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district, right? Like you would imagine that that's a very natural thing to do on, for no other reason, right? If you see somebody who you know is not like blind, they've got bad eyesight and they're kind of blind, but they're like legitimately blind on Tuesday, and on Wednesday he's playing catch with his kid, something changed. And it's hard to keep, like, you know that Frank was blind on Tuesday, now he seems like he can see on Wednesday. They're not chalking that up to contacts, right? Like, they, they, something happened. It's hard to keep that sort of bottled up. You know that it's, it's got to be an incredibly difficult thing to, to keep quiet about. I don't know how they would respond to something like that. But on top of that, when good things happen to you, it is natural to want to tell other people about it. If you were to go out this week and play the lotto on a whim, just for clarity's sake, this probably wasn't the best illustration, but for clarity's sake, let me say this for the record. The lotto is a silly waste. 
It's an evil practice that bleeds the poor dry while lying to them about the hope that it's meant to supply. It is regressive and a wretched plight on our nation, and the lotto specifically is done by our government to perpetuate that. It's a horrible thing. But you don't care. You just want to figure out what all the fuss is about. So notice I'm saying you do it, not me, because I would never do that. So you go out and you play the lotto. You drop down your $5 or whatever it is to see if you can't pocket the $150 million that is up for grabs. By providence, by luck, whatever you want to ascribe it to, you win. Now, there are a whole host of reasons why you would want to keep that quiet. First and foremost, you're a Baptist and you know that everyone else you know thinks badly of that. And you're also Baptist, so you keep your sin to yourself. So, whole host of reasons why you want to keep that quiet. But secondly, you also know that you will all of a sudden have cousins and brothers and sisters that you have never heard of before in your life who want nothing more than to meet your acquaintance, to shake your hand, to tell you how much they love you. And if you've got 30,000 laying around, Papa needs a new truck. So you don't want to deal with any of that. So you know that you want to keep it quiet. And even though you've got all of those reasons to keep it quiet, you also know that you are dying to tell somebody. And maybe you can buy a slightly nicer car and nicer home, and you can, you can not do extravagant things, but just spend a little bit of the money, keeping it mostly quiet, but you're still inside dying to tell somebody how fortunate you have been. <clears throat> Give these men the equivalent of $150 million to this day. And you say, blind men, you can either have your eyesight or you can have all this money. My guess is that many of the blind men, especially today, might be different. Back then, they would turn down that money in a heartbeat to be able to see. Some, perhaps not, many would. They have reasons to want to talk. It's natural that they talk. It's natural that they want to explain the good thing that has happened to them. And because of that, we give these guys a pass sermons and, and, and scholars come in and they talk about how this is, this is really quite a natural thing that these men would go out and talk. They give them a gentle pass, but they shouldn't. No matter what sin it is, it always starts with this sort of reasonable suggestion that I don't have to do what the Lord has called on me to do. There is a good reason why the very first sin reported in the Bible is so spectacularly small. The Lord says, do not eat the fruit. When Eve is presented with the fruit, the very first thing she does is reason around the fact that the Lord has told her not to. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was there, the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She immediately went through the reasons in her head, all of which, by the way, were true. Went through those reasons in her head and put them in the scale, and she said, I've got all these reasons why this fruit is good, and I should put it in my mouth, and I should eat it. All the while ignoring that on the other side, an infinite weight sits on it, that no amount of reason should overcome, and that is the fact that God said no. You don't, you don't need to think it through 
to consider options to weigh opportunity cost, you don't need to do anything. It's a hard pass. No matter how many good reasons you might have for engaging in something, if the Lord told you not to do it, then it's a no. What these men did was nothing less than sinful. I suspect Jesus knew precisely what they were going to do. The word that is used here is sternly. But that word has this underlying presence of rebuke and anger. It's the same word that a mom might use when after making cookies, she looks at her son and she says, you are not to touch one of those things because she knows what was going through the back of his mind. And she knows that he's probably going to do it anyway. So she warns him beforehand. That's the, the, the thought that seems to be present here when Jesus sternly warns them. He knows what they're going to do. He knows that he's going to tell them no, and they're going to go do it anyways. It's almost like a pre-rebuke. This is all the more glaring for their own astuteness. They called him the son of David. That's a kingly title. If you know nothing about kings, and Americans gladly almost know nothing about kings, it is the fact that when the king speaks, you do. That's what the nature of a monarch ought to be. Sorry, Chuck. It's what the nature of a monarch should be. When you are a true monarch, you speak, that is the law. Your subjects are subject to the words you speak. They call him the son of David, and they don't do what he says. Friends, that, that can't be your faith. You cannot have wonderful insights as to who Jesus is. Holding him up as someone who is powerful and magnificent and wonderful and compassionate, call him king and call him Lord. You cannot stand in here and sing of his glory, confess it, pray about it, sing about it, and not show him that same glory through obedience, denying the very words that you are confessing and that you are singing and that you are saying. It is sinful, pure, and simple. Friends, be astute. Know the details of who Jesus is and why he's acting and what he is doing, but do not, do not be sinful. Third, the amazed versus the slanderous. The last miracle is a double, not because there are two people, but because he has two separate problems. He's demon-oppressed, and he is mute, and he's brought. And Jesus casts out the demon, and all of a sudden his tongue is loosened, and people, well, people are amazed. I would think the response in verse 33, that the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel, is not a response just to the man who was mute and demon-possessed now being freed of both of those things, but given that it comes at the end of these 10 miracles that go from Matthew 8 through Matthew 9, I think it's sort of a summary of the whole lot of them. At the end, people are absolutely blown away by Jesus. Jesus already has been this, I think, whole expedition summed up back in Matthew 4 before we got into the teaching of Jesus. And there's a reason why that summary is provided there and why we go through both the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the miracles of 8 and 9. That summary in Matthew chapter 4 said this, Jesus went through all, all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. He has continued this here. He has taught the Sermon on the Mount, and now he has healed all kinds of various diseases. The response to both is the same. At the end of his teaching, the people marveled at his teaching. At the end of his healing, they stand amazed at his healing. His fame spreads far and wide. This is because Jesus stands as the new Moses. Just as Moses in the book of Deuteronomy goes up on a mountain in order to give the law, so Jesus walks up at the end of chapter 4 up onto the mount to give the Sermon on the Mount. Might as well call it the Sermon on the Mountain. He gives that sermon from the mount just like Moses does. And then, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, just as a coincidence, Matthew records ten signs and wonders that Jesus provides for people. Just like Moses himself did ten plagues and signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. This particular statement at the end, never was anything like this seen in Israel, even mocks the magicians and the the court response to the eighth miracle that, that Moses does. Moses tells them, that these locusts, the the eighth one is the locust before we get to darkness and then the plague on the firstborn. The locusts shall fill your houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have ever seen. Nothing like this has ever been seen in the land of Egypt before for the day they come on this earth to this day. Jesus is a better Moses, not bringing plagues, not bringing misery, but bringing healing and compassion and goodness. He is the new and better Moses. But what is even more interesting is that this reference seems to include the fact that the very outcome of what the Exodus was there for is indeed the outcome of what Jesus' miracles do. Why does God perform all the miracles? Why does he keep hardening the heart of Pharaoh to extend those miracles? He tells us. He says this to Pharaoh in chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 9 of the book of Exodus. But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, so that the wonder and the fame of who God is might be known. And here, at the end of it, the fame of Jesus spreads far and wide. Not only does Jesus stand as the new and better Moses, he stands as God. He receives the praise to his name that God was to receive to his. And that fact alone is enough to push people away. Jesus is an amazing person. People seem to know and understand that. It doesn't matter whether it's in his teaching, in his healing. They would come from great distances to heal be healed by him. They would come from great distances to hear him. They were beginning to think that he might just be more than some guy who has some abilities with words, with miracles, but one who carries real and true authority, who overflows with power over sin, disease, and death. And in short, there's the undercurrent that this man is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, and there are people who can't stand it. 
It's an interesting thing that of all the people who should be awaiting the Messiah and longing for his arrival, the Pharisees are among the top of that list. Because the Messiah is not just a liberator of the people, which certainly the Pharisees would have wanted and the zealots along with them, but he is also one who will turn the heart of the people back to God. The heart of the people turning to God is not just showing that they desire God, but they're willing to obey the Lord. The Pharisees were all about obedience. They were all about keeping the law, tracking the law, doing what the law required. And yet, as soon as Jesus shows up, it doesn't take long before they start to not want him to be there at all. Jesus isn't what they expect. Instead of adjusting their expectations in light of the power and the authority and the grace that are shown in him, they decide that they're going to fight it. If Jesus doesn't look the way I want him to look, if he doesn't fit my qualifications, if he doesn't say what I think he should say, or heal who I think he should heal, or ask for and demand obedience the way I think it should be taught, then he is to be resisted no matter how. Matthew records this just matter-of-factly. The Pharisees say he cast out demons by the prince of demons. This isn't the last time this particular thing is going to come up. This accusation is going to mount up again in chapter 12, where Jesus actually deals with the incredibly short-sighted logic of that statement. Both places, the implication is it's not about the logic of it. There is no logic to it. There's no reason why they think that. There's no reason why that would ever even be the case. The whole purpose is that they simply don't like who Jesus is. He doesn't look, he doesn't act, he doesn't speak, he doesn't, doesn't respond to sinful people the way that they want him to. It's not like the Pharisees have weighed the evidence and come up with the fact that it must be the devil who is doing these miraculous works. They can't doubt the goodness of the act, so they doubt the goodness of the person. It's a sly move, and one that probably works much of the time. But we cannot be those kind of people. It's remarkable how often we do this, though. We trade in the Jesus of Scripture for who we want him to be. There are times in which many people want Jesus to be much more authoritarian when it comes to demanding that people keep and are obedient to what the law says. We want him to be not only one who brings in disciples, but one who requires much out of those disciples. And we hear in his teaching where he says, hey, listen, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me, calling for this radical obedience. And many people scream, yes, that's what we need. That's what will fix the church. A little bit more obedience. A little bit less letting things go. Less compassion. There are other people who insist that, that calling people to obedience, say that, that sort of thing sits poorly with them. The whole let the dead bury their own dead is a little bit too much, Jesus. Those words are a little too harsh. I like the compassionate Jesus, the one who seems to be forgiving of sin, the one who seems to be accepting of people. I really like that. Truth of the matter is that Jesus is simultaneously more gracious and compassionate than anyone in here is. Not just how you conceive him to be, but he is more gracious and compassionate than anyone in here. You do not know the depth of the mercy 
and the grace that Christ has shown to you. But he is also more demanding than anyone else in here. He demands more out of the people who follow him than we have the right to ask of any other person. He is both of those things. This is part of the amazement that people have when it comes to Jesus. That Jesus in one instant can tell someone exactly what they need to hear when he says, you, you go away from me because you've got to let the, de- let the dead bury their own dead. You come to me, but I'm going to tell this other guy, foxes have no, foxes have dens, but I've got no place to lay my head. You're going to have to deal with the hardship. He is compassionate and kind and demanding. We don't get to, we don't get to keep one of those aspects and throw the other away. Our denial of either one is slanderous. It's not perhaps the wild slander of the Pharisees here, but it's slanderous nonetheless. Part of our job is to stand in the fullness of who Jesus is presented as and to stand in the wonder and amazement of who he is. Both his power and authority, his might and his strength, his harsh words and his difficult statements, and his compassion and his care, his generosity, his grace, his forgiveness, his healing. Let Jesus be Jesus. And do not fit him into whatever mold you want him to be. Listen to the words of the man and allow him to be exactly the person that God had always intended him to be because he is nothing less than God. Let Jesus be Jesus and stand in amazement at him lest you slander his good name and idolize him as nothing more than a better version of you. Jesus is not just a better version of you. We admit there are always two sides to every story. Perhaps put better, there, there's a side for every person who has a story. Each person's going to have their own take. They're going to have their own view. They're going to have their own opinion on what happened and what it means. This is no different than when it comes to Jesus. The question that confronts you and I today, though, is simple. What side are you on? On one side, we have people who find in Jesus something utterly amazing. Someone to be awed at, to be marveled at, who shows compassion and care and grace and power and might and majesty, who are assured not only can he do miraculous things, but that he wants in loving kindness to do those for you. And on the other side, we have skeptics, unwilling to give the benefit of the doubt. We have sinful people who are willing to use that power for their own benefit, but will not treat him as Lord. We have the slanderous who decry the very Jesus they find in reality so that they can pursue their own. There are two sides here. There is one of faith, one of disbelief. There is a path of righteousness and a path which, as Jesus said in his own words, will lead to nothing but despair. The question is, which side are you on? Will you choose wisely the day, this day, the path that you are going to pursue? Choose your story, but friend, choose it well. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us conviction where we are wrong. Give us eyes to see the wonder and the amazement of Jesus, even as these people 
saw him. Let us see him. Give death to the excuses we have of our sin. We pray that you might be glorified among your people this morning so the world might see and hear of your goodness. Be magnified, be glorified, be believed on. Let us come boldly before your throne. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would, stand and sing our hymn of response, Take My Life and Let It Be.